You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, a weird thing seems to happen on some of these weeks where you might otherwise expect that there ain't shit going on. Mm-hmm. And that is sometimes on these weeks, it turns out that this is when, when you got the most storylines. We had, uh, you know, all the way from Fabricio Verdum, the Tom Brady of MMA, having an unsuccessful debut in the PFL. We had Bellator out here squeezing a whole lot of damn living into their uh, Showtime event. And then, of course, the UFC on Saturday with fights falling out, last-minute replacements, kind of a scrambled card. We come out of it on Monday. I know that I said this regarding the, the Patreon movie club, but it's a little bit of a grab bag, to be honest. It is. You can grab damn near anything you want out of that bag. But first things first, Jed. I'm a little concerned. It's Monday morning. I went to check on the status of our one share of Endeavor Group Holdings, Inc. Mm-hmm. We've dipped down below $30 a share here. For a while this morning, we were all the way down there below $28. And, man, I'll just be honest with you. When we were riding high up at like $31 last week, I might have got a little carried away with our newfound wealth. And now, after I went and bought these rare albino tigers, uh, I'm looking at the stock price this morning. And I, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can afford to feed them. And they're starting to look hungry. I'm I'm worried. I'm concerned that you are just a little bit too plugged in here to the stock prices that uh, maybe you're just maybe you're a little bit you're riding the wave too much, man. Getting too high with the highs and too low with the lows is my concern. Here's what we need. We need a big summer out of Conor McGregor. We need, uh, you know. We need John Jones to, to just to do this one for pride, basically. That's what would really help us out. John Jones can just do this Francis Ngannou fight. Just, you know, whatever whatever happened to bragging rights? You know what I mean? You know what I mean. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about. So it's just money, money, money with these guys. I don't get it. As a yeah. stockholder, as a shareholder now, now I don't get it. I have long wondered the price of your soul. Mm-hmm. And now we've discovered it's around right there, hovering around thirty dollars a share. About thirty bucks, yeah. So that's that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Remember, everybody, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines or podcast libraries. And if you like what you hear on this show, you absolutely know, need to go check out what's going on over at the Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash Co-Main Event. We're over there all week long. Three additional podcasts every single week. If you don't get your MMA fix from this show, you can check out the Wednesday live chat, the Friday power hour, and of course, last but not least, the Thursday movie club for the top level patrons this week, Ben, uh, perhaps something 
relevant to the interests of the listeners to this podcast, we're going to be watching The Smashing Machine, the documentary about former UFC fighter Mark Kerr. Uh, you want to hear my, my story about The Smashing Machine? It's that when I worked for the IFL, one of the IFL co-founders, Kurt Otto, would talk often about how it was what he saw on the documentary The Smashing Machine that convinced him that MMA fighters needed promoters who would take better care of them, offering health insurance and regular stipends for training and all that kind of stuff. And once he came into the little bullpen area where a bunch of the low-level staffers, including myself, for the IFL were in the New York offices, and he was asking, like, the graphic designers and web people and everything, like, you guys have seen The Smashing Machine, right? And they were like, no. Like, they weren't MMA fans. They were just people, like, this is a job. And he looked at me and he was like, you've seen The Smashing Machine, right? And I was like, yeah, Smashing Machine is an awesome documentary. And he was like, okay, here's what I need you to do. Uh, get on Amazon and order us like just like half a dozen copies of the DVD just to have around the office just for like when people haven't seen it so that like right now that we should be able to throw it on and you could see everybody's eyes in the little bullpen room kind of turned to me like okay I guess you're just going to order us a DVD and interrupt our workday now by making us watch this some documentary about a fighter we've never heard of and I was just like what am I going to do am I going to tell the guy like no, I'm not going to order these DVDs, or I think that this is a weird idea, or like, can I have your credit card to order the DVDs? Uh, yeah, and so it was like, all right, the guy's just like, you know, rich guy says he wants a bunch of DVDs of the Smashing Machine to appear. God damn it, that's what's going to happen. They never it, did watch those DVDs, Jed. It's amazing that that company didn't make it. Yeah. That that, that IFL is mm-hmm. defunct. Just shocking, shocking news. Uh, remember, we got music this week on the podcast from Stockholm-based producer Simeo, a.k.a. co-main event podcast listener Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash That's S-E-E-M-I-O. We got three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Donald Cerrone is an old dog, man. And in round number two, Bellator actually had the best event of the week. And there's no denying it. And in round number three, we lost Diaz versus Edwards for the time being. But UFC 262 still has some fun stuff happening, including a fight for the vacant lightweight title. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Andre, who writes, Is it ethical to interview Diego Sanchez? Just a... Just a thought that might make for interesting discussion after reading excerpts from an interview Diego gave to Sirius XM. On one hand, Diego Sanchez has a point when he says things like, when I've bled, I've sweat, I've fucking cried for this company, I've fucking sacrificed more than you will ever know, and you can't have 45 minutes to meet with me. You could also argue that Diego needs access to the press because he is the much weaker party in his dispute with the UFC. However, the man is clearly struggling with mental health. Is it... It is doubtful he is in a place where he can be trusted to make an educated decision on what he says publicly. As a journalist, is it ethical to interview Diego Sanchez at this point? If so, do special conditions apply? Now, interestingly enough, Ben, this listener mail rolls out just a, just a, a short time after we've had this hour-long interview with Josh Fabia dropped from the, uh, I believe, Mike Swick podcast here that... Uh, and even as we record this, I see people are, are basically live tweeting it. They're watching the, the recording and live tweeting all the stuff. Wait, is Mike Josh... Swick talking to Josh Fabia right now? 
I think that's what you're record- telling me. I think it's recorded, but okay. the the video just came out this morning. So people are watching it, and as they watch it, they are tweeting their their thoughts and their feelings about the various stuff that that Josh Fabia is saying. An interesting question here, though. And one that you might be able to extend beyond just Diego Sanchez at times in combat sports. But what do you make of this uh, generalized question here that as a journalist, is it ethical to interview a guy like Diego Sanchez who might be well be having some manner of uh, psychological crisis related to his release from the UFC? I guess my first question is what position we're in to make a diagnosis here. Right. We've had this conversation before, right, about how. And I think then we were talking about what what level of concern or what responsibility does the community have when somebody seems like they are going through some sort of mental health crisis. And there's a, a, there are times where it feels like people are quick trying to grab a piece of it for the sake of headlines and clicks. And I think we were talking before about it in regards to Tony Ferguson. And one of the questions that we came up with was some MMA fighters are known for let's say they're eccentric behavior. And how do you know when we've crossed a line from, oh, that guy, he's so fun and zany to, oh, that guy, I think he is experiencing a mental health crisis. Right. And those lines are not necessarily so clear, especially to a bunch of us in the media who are not mental health experts. And honestly, I I don't know that I would look at what's going on with Diego Sanchez right now and go, okay, it's irresponsible to talk to the guy because he's not in control of what he's saying. Like, I think what's going on with him is this relationship that he has with Josh Fabia is, it feels dangerous and exploitative and very cult-like. Especially where I saw quotes from him recently talking about how members of his family had reached out to him to be like, we're concerned about your relationship with this guy. Like, we think that he is just causing trouble for you and that is no good. And that he basically cut them out of his life in response. And that we've heard similar things from other people who said like when they've tried to talk to him about it, like, hey, we think that this might be a bad thing, that he has responded really negatively to that. Yeah. And that's the thing that I worry about. Not so much that like Diego Sanchez is not in control of what he's saying, just that Diego Sanchez is not seeing this relationship as clearly as everybody else is seeing. Like he's not seeing it for what it is. Yeah. When everybody else is going like, this is this is bad, man. Like, you should get out of there. But also, like, this quote that Andre, who I love, I just felt the need to include one name here, points out that, like, if you just read the quote, there's nothing in there that makes me think this is either uncommon for Diego or uncommon for a guy who finds himself in Diego's situation. Like, I think that this is a, a frequent sort of emotional pattern that a lot of fighters at this stage in their career go through, where especially you can understand from Diego's perspective, where he's like, man, I was the first ultimate fighter champion. Like that was a big deal for you guys. You guys needed me back then. He'd been in the UFC for like 17 damn years. Like it's so long for anybody to be at that level of the sport, like almost his entire career in the UFC and to have it come to an end and feel like, man, the boss won't even talk to you. He just, he told them to cut you from afar and you can't even get a meeting with him. You can't even get like a, a, an exchange of conversation with him and to feel like used and just kind of like wrung out and tossed aside. I can understand why he'd feel that way. And I think a lot of fighters feel that way by the time they get to this stage of their career, because it's a hard reality to be like, they cared about me when they needed me or when they thought I was useful to them. And now that they've 
they've crossed a threshold to thinking that I'm no longer useful and that, in fact, I might be a liability, they can't get rid of me fast enough. And they don't have any use for me. They don't want to talk to me or about me or anything. And that sucks because of all the stuff that I've put into this. And I, I totally get why I'd feel that way. But I also think that maybe the lesson there is for other fighters to, is to realize that day will come for just about anybody in this business. And you should be treating it like that from the very beginning. You should know, like, whatever they tell you about how we're all big, one big happy family and that we want fighters to be our partners and work with us and do this stuff. It's not going to be true when you get to that point. You should yeah. be looking at it this way from the get go. Yeah. And you make a good point that MMA especially is full of characters that from one moment to the next, you're not totally sure which version of them you will get in any manner of conversation. And I suppose that as working MMA journalists, everybody needs to make their own decisions about how they feel and whether or not they feel comfortable interviewing people on a case-by-case -case basis, on, judging by who you're going to talk to and why you're going to talk to them. But one thing that I would point out about Diego Sanchez right now is that there's legitimately some news going on around Diego Sanchez, yeah. which I feel like is a little bit different than like if you were just calling up somebody to talk to him because you knew it was going to be crazy. Right. right. So that's not what really what's going on with Diego Sanchez here. Like people are talking to Diego Sanchez because he was the, the one of the longest tenured fighters on the UFC roster, a huge fan favorite, the last uh, active member of the Ultimate Fighter season one cast to still be on the UFC roster. And then regarding or at least immediately in the wake or around the release of these videos that he and his camp put out, he gets cut. And so that's that's a news story. And I think in some ways, people have a responsibility to e interview Diego Sanchez around right. that release because you wouldn't want to do it without his comments. You wouldn't want right. to do it just with the UFC side of the story. And uh, heaven forbid, just with a guy like Josh Fabia out here speaking for Diego Sanchez. So I think that there's something to be said with hearing the story straight from Diego. Now, some of the other stuff that he has commented on about fearing for his life and wondering if the UFC is going to have him killed and all this other stuff is, is super wacky and a little bit out there. And I think rightly gives people cause for concern to about his mental health and about his well being. But I don't know that I would throw that at the feet of the media in this particular instance. Like I feel yeah. like every, everyone is, is, at least to my knowledge, correctly and accurately doing their jobs and in interviewing Diego Sanchez around this situation. Now, if it was a case where it was like, oh, we're just going to call up Diego Sanchez and, and get him on our show so he'll say wacky stuff and we can have a laugh about it, that would feel exploitative. But right. I don't necessarily think that's what's happening here. And frankly, despite the fact that some of it is uncomfortable, I guess I would rather that we know that this is going on with Diego Sanchez than it just sort of happening in the dark. Right. And I think Andre sort of puts his finger on it here where he says that you could argue Diego needs access to the press because he's the weaker party between he and the UFC. Like there is an argument to be made there that if there is this sort of dispute that comes amid this really sudden, like just releasing the guy from his contract after they're requesting medicals and you're having a conversation with him about it. The If you just say, oh, hey, we're concerned about that it's not ethical to interview Diego Sanchez right now, therefore, we're going to just kind of ignore him. We'll tell the story that the UF, as the UFC told it to us, and you sort of silence Diego in that way. Or you, you leave him in a situation where he can only get his story out via social media or something like that. And you're right that if we're going to be talking about this news story, then we he deserves the opportunity 
to at least have the option to be heard when we're having that conversation. Uh, I also think though, that like the, like the, a lot of the sentiments that he is expressing seem not unreasonable, even if he's being very Diego Sanchez about him. Like we should not be surprised that he is very, very intense about this situation. He's intense about everything, but basic, the basic stuff that he is saying is not so different from what we've heard from a lot of fighters. The stuff that you said about him saying that he feared for his life. I mean, yes, he's getting carried away there. As somebody pointed out on Twitter, they're like, look, Rob Macy has been leading this antitrust lawsuit effort against the UFC for years. If they didn't kill him, like if they're going to make a body disappear, Chad, there's a black sedan that's going to pull up along the sidewalk and yank you in there and you're never seen him again. You'd think it'd be somebody like that. Diego Sanchez, I don't know if you have that much to worry about. I don't think, I, I think if, if Rob Macy has made it this far, Diego Sanchez is probably okay. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Shad Rap. He writes, pour one out for your boy, Fabricio Verdum. I don't know about you, but that definitely looked like a tap to me. Now, we discussed this at length over on the Patreon Power Hour on Friday. Ben Fabricio Verdum, the Tom Brady of M- MMA, losing his PFL debut to Hanan Ferreira. TKO in the first round, two minutes and 32 seconds. Uh, we went back and did some film study on the power hour watched this fight over because obviously there's some controversy at foot here the idea that maybe Henan Ferreira did the old phantom tap on uh on Fabrizio Verdum's side in an, at an angle where uh the referee couldn't see it and then proceeded to win the fight with with some hard ground and pound strikes there to TKO and Fabrizio Verdum with some thudding hammer fists I guess you could say uh, you've had some time to reflect on it now. We There was a little bit of disagreement between the two of us about what we were seeing on the tape. Uh, I, I think that Fabrizio Verdum felt the felt the tap and then a few seconds later released the submission hold and then got, got pounded out. You weren't so sure about that. You, th- you thought maybe he had been stunned by the punches uh, from the top. How, how are you feeling about this with the light of Monday morning shining all over it? You still think that, uh, that Fabrizio Verdum... We just got TKO'd here without without much controversy? I mean, I can understand when you look at it in slow motion afterwards why there's some controversy about it. When you watch it in real time, it's it goes by so quickly that I don't know what you could really expect, especially the referee to do there. And if Fabrizio Verdum's argument is that I felt a tap and therefore I let go without the referee ever saying anything... Well, then that's kind of on you, man. You're not supposed to do that. And you know that. Like, Fabrizio Doom's experienced enough that he knows that you you hold on to that shit until the referee tells you to let it go. Plus, after we saw this you know, alleged tap, Fabrizio Verdum moved to pull down the head into the triangle choke. That didn't look like a guy right then who had just felt a tap and was going, okay, I'm going to let this guy go. That felt like a guy who was going to go ahead and finish that choke. So, I, I still think that when he did let go, it was because... He was being punched in the head and that, it, and it wasn't, he felt like the choke wasn't working and the guy was slipping out of the choke. And yet I can also see how he would look at that slow motion replay from the angle where you can really see the hand touch the, the back of the shoulder a couple times and be like, there it is. There's the tap. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not prepared to say, like, even if that was a, I'm going to tap you a couple times as I'm moving around to see if I can get you to let go. Honestly, I think that that's, a workable strategy 
It's, you're playing with fire a little bit, the same way Ian Kudalabra was when he acted like he was hurt from punches and the referee bought it and stepped in there and stopped it. That can happen when you try that old quick tap thing. But I also think that maybe it's a little bit of subterfuge that you should get to try in an MMA fight. Yeah, one of the one of the real problems here is that you can't even see the tap on the original angle. Does the 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 live feed from the PFL? They have kind of like an overhead camera angle going. Well, Fabrizio Verdum has the triangle locked up and you can't really see the tap and it's a very hard to tell what the timing is. Now, you, you, you get the slow motion alternate angle and you can definitely see what appears like a, a phantom tap. And as we discussed on Friday, to my knowledge, that's that's not specifically illegal according to the unified rules of mixed martial arts. So if you're stuck in a tight triangle choke and you feel like you might be on the verge of going out, you might as well try it because just like so many things in this sport, the rules uh, leave some room for interpretation and perhaps make it worth your while to try to uh, perpetrate some skullduggery in order to, to give yourself an advantage. Uh, when I watch the real-time footage, I still see what looks like Fabrizio Verdum letting go with a choke and kind of stopping to fight and then g- getting pounded out from there. But I agree with you with that the result at this point uh, uh, seems like a legitimate TKO win for Henan Ferreira. Fabrizio Verdum obviously will get to soldier on in this PFL season. He'll get to get back out there. I don't think he's out of it by any stretch of the imagination, but definitely not the uh, definitely not the PFL debut that you probably imagined for yourself if you were the go horse. So we'll just have to see how things go for him during the rest of this season. I tell you what, if if you're the next person who gets caught in a Fabrizio Verdum triangle choke armbar combo, uh, and you feel like you need to tap to avoid injury, you better make that tap really clear and vehement because he is not going to let it go until the referee pries his arms off. Yeah, he's not going to let it go till the head pops off, I think. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Jack Klompas, who writes, It's been exactly a year since Justin Gaethje ended Tony Ferguson's 12-fight win streak. And following another loss, the hype behind Tony seems to have all but disappeared. Why is that? Surely he should still be considered one of the best at 155. So, okay, so we go, so we know about Gaethje and Oliveira, but I'd still love to see him against other top 155ers. What, how do you think he'd do against Connor Chandler or Hooker? Uh, Tony Ferguson returns this weekend, Ben, UFC 262. He's going to be taking on Benil Dariush in what is still an important uh, lightweight contender fight for both these guys. At this point, your guy Anthony Armand Ferguson, a.k.a. El Kakui, is 37 years old. Uh, he is riding uh, the first two-fight losing streak of his entire career. Last win over Donald Cerrone back at UFC 238 in June of 2019. Obviously, we will talk about uh, the fate of Donald Cerrone coming up here in round number one. Actually, kind of interesting now that I look at the, at the Tony Ferguson record, his last three wins are Donald Cerrone, Anthony Pettis, and then Kevin Lee way back at UFC 216. Um, so with, with a list of wins like that, it's actually a little bit hard for me to get a bead on what's going on with Tony Ferguson here, at least competitively, obviously he's getting up there in age a little bit, but I would agree that like Tony Ferguson still ought to be considered among the top lightweight contenders in the world. And I don't necessarily think that a matchup with Benil Dariush, uh, invalidates that in any way. I think Benil Dariush is a serious dude as well, and is now finally getting the chance to match up with another top lightweight in the form of Tony Ferguson. So to me, yeah, Tony Ferguson needs a win here. He's got two two losses in a row, which ain't great. 
Uh, he he desperately needs to win this. But to me, this matchup almost says more about Benil Dariush finally getting a shot against a big name guy than he than it does about Tony Ferguson like being on the downside of anything. Yeah. Well, first of all, good to hear from minor Seinfeld character Jack Klompas. We appreciate him writing in. But I agree that like I don't think anybody should see it as if if he's fighting Benil Dariush, that means that the UFC has given up on Tony Ferguson or thinks that. He sucks, and we're all just moving on because Darius is one of those guys who we've talked about in the lightweight division where it's so hard to get people's attention and to stand out because there's so much talent in that division. This guy's win streak now is, what, six fights, you know? And he he's just quietly racking up a, a great little run here. And putting him against Tony Ferguson is, seems like the kind of recognition that's kind of like, okay, here's a guy who is a name fighter. People are always paying attention to him regardless because he's just like an interesting fighter, interesting fighting style, interesting person. You go in there against this guy, you get a win over him, and it really puts you on the map. Like Then that shows that they can't ignore you anymore. But I also think that for Tony Ferguson, there's no shame in losing to guys like Justin Gaethje and Charles Oliveira. Uh, it does, though, put you in a situation where I think people have been looking at Tony Ferguson's age for a while now and going... Sooner or later, this guy's got to show up and start looking like he is on the downside. And so then when you lose a couple, I think there's a lot of people who go, yep, there it is. Because they were looking for it to begin with. And people were saying that when we kept seeing that Khabib fight deferred over and over and over again. Like, we're going to miss the window. And Tony Ferguson's window of opportunity is going to be closed by the time he finally gets a shot at some of these big fights in the lightweight division. I think that that's, I think people are probably looking at him right now and going like, okay, they're, because they realize he's been in some wars, he's in his late 30s, the lighter divisions just typically aren't that kind to aging fighters the same. I mean, if you were a 37-year-old heavyweight, shit, man, you've got a decade of good years, like good fights left in you. But 37-year-old lightweight with as much talent as there is in this division, people are already sort of like ready to push you off the cliff. And this is one of those fights where it's your opportunity to take a step back from the cliff. Because if you, if you can beat Benil Dariush as Tony Ferguson, then you're kind of right back in that conversation, I think. Especially the way, with the way things are now, the vacant title and, and just who's missing from the division and who's still around. But it's also a tough-ass fight, man. Like, yeah. that's, that's going to be a tough night of work for Tony Ferguson. And I, what I guess I'm really eager to see is... If is Tony Ferguson can come in here and show some ability to adjust on the fly against Benil Dariush, because what we saw in that Charles Oliveira fight was that Oliveira figured out, here's what I got to do to beat you, and there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. And especially in this weight class, so many good fighters, when they see somebody else do that to you, somebody's going to show up the next time and... People are going to look at some of those holes that they've seen in your game, both against Oliveira, against Justin Gaethje, and be like, prove to me that those holes aren't there anymore. Yeah. Because that's the first thing I'm going to do is test them. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that this Dariush fight is actually a, a good piece of UFC matchmaking. Because if Benil Dariush goes out there and beats Tony Ferguson, then you can't deny the guy a spot among the the top 155-pound contenders anymore. He'll definitely prove that he belongs alongside all those other guys that are mentioned in this in this question and if Tony Ferguson is able to barrel roll his way right through Benil Dariush then I think we got to look at it and say wow still some life 
left in Tony Ferguson that he and he's still on the short list of guys who could challenge a new champion depending on who it is uh, who emerges with the title at UFC 262. So like, as far as I'm concerned, this is a good litmus test for both these guys, and, and yeah. I don't I don't dislike anything about it. Uh, all you right, think we see him throw the sand. Do we see him pick up the sand and throw it? I, there's no way to know, man. No way to predict from one moment to the next what a guy like Tony Ferguson is going to do. And that's part of the appeal. Well, except for showing up wearing sunglasses. Wherever oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and whatever time, wherever you are, that's the one thing you can count on. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Timothy Aristides Caravos. Probably nailed it. He writes, how about this? Rose Namajunas has the best story arc all time in MMA. Tell me one better. To me, best storyline ever. Now, this is a bold statement, and in some ways, I would like to to find out a little bit more about uh, about what the listener thinks of as the greatest storyline arc ever. Because, like in the cage, yeah, it's it's an awesome story that Rose Namajunas became uh, the first woman to recapture a title that she had lost in UFC history when she knocks out Wiley Zhang at UFC 261 with that kick right to the jaw a couple few weeks ago. Um, and in that regard, I think Rose Namajunas is a great story, especially since she's a, a person who has been competing at a championship level since really, really early in her career. And maybe one of the things that we found out about her during those early opportunities was that she was not quite ready. And now she has evolved to a point where she is obviously ready and is obviously one of the best fighters at that weight class in the world, perhaps the best and uh, and it was it was a great story to see her go out and prove it in emphatic fashion against Wiley Zhang. Now you're going to start saying stuff like greatest storylines of all time. You're going to get some stiff competition from a lot yeah. of people in this sport because there are, you know, MMA is, is overflowing with good stories. Everyone has a damn story about how they wound up in this crazy sport doing this thing for a living. So like if you're talking about life story. Rose Namajunas obviously overcame a lot of adversity as a young person, but I don't necessarily know if if she can best a guy like Francis Ngannou in terms right. of like his life story. And if you're talking just in the cage, you still got stiff competition from guys like George St. Pierre, uh, you know, Michael Bisping. Michael Bisping, yeah. Uh, but she's got a really good story, no question about it. Yeah, and I also don't know that we should feel the need to rank them. When it comes to stuff like, oh come on, like personal you know story that, arcs, you know that this show's on the internet, right? <laughs> Place where the people I, can find this show is on the internet. Here's what I'll say though about Rose Namajunas's sort of story arc, personally and as a fighter, and how fans have connected with it. I hope that other fighters will see it as a an indicator that it is in your best interest sometimes to let people in and let them know what's going on with you. Because so many fighters, and you know it from when we interview them sometimes, they feel the need to put up a really strong front regardless of whether they feel that way. And even, you know, you try to talk to them about some heartbreaking loss that we all saw them go through and either they'll, they'll shut it down, they don't want to talk about it, or they, they want to put some kind of different spin on it. And it's because they everybody feels the need to keep up this tough guy exterior. You're, you're worried about projecting any sort of weakness or showing any weakness to your opponents that they're going to seize on it and they're going to pick you apart. Everybody has been sort of conditioned in this sport that you have to constantly seem like you're tough. And Rose took a very different approach to it and 
let people in on just like personal vulnerability and mental health struggles and that you don't always feel like the best even when you stand up there in the cage and are repeating to yourself over and over again that you are the best and like allowing people to see her as a complex and real human being and not just as this facade of like I'm trying to appear as though I'm a superhero at all times. And that leads to people feeling an emotional connection and feeling like an investment in your career. And that leads to them caring a lot more than they might otherwise. I would hope that other fighters learn that, learn a lesson from that, that there is some value in that. And that, and, and just like telling people what you're going through, you don't always have to be the tough guy. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Some of the extended fallout from Diego Sanchez's unplanned and abrupt exit from the UFC, Ben, is that Alex Morono steps in to take on Donald the Cowboy Cerrone in the co-main event of this UFC on ESPN, Rodriguez versus Watterson card on very short notice. Obviously, uh, Donald Cerrone getting up there in years, maybe getting toward the end of the ride, so to speak, here in the UFC. And Alex Morono goes out there and wins this fight by TKO in the first round, four minutes and 40 seconds, in a fight where it didn't necessarily look like Donald Cerrone had been completely defanged. He's out there still with some of his tools. He's throwing sharp kicks. He's trying to to work the kickboxing game. But not only, I think, have we arrived at a point where people know how to fight Donald Cerrone, they have the the right game plan because there's so much, not only tape, but kind of like word of mouth out there about what Cerrone's strengths and weaknesses are that people know strategically how to approach these things. But also you just got younger, faster, more powerful guys out there taking on a version of the cowboy uh, who who's in decline, I think, pretty obviously. The guy's just... Uh, I think four, nine, and one over his last 14 or 15 fights, currently riding about a five-fight losing streak with the no contest against Nico Price mixed in there. Uh, Originally a draw, Price tested positive for marijuana, got turned into a no contest. But uh, you know the cowboy, man. He's out here telling us he's going to keep coming back because he can't let his career end this way. And yet, as we have discussed numerous times on this show, when is a good time to end your mixed martial arts career is it with the bad taste in your mouth from a loss or is it on the heels of a big win where you're going to look at your performance and you think man i can still do this i'm still dangerous i can still beat these guys seems equally hard to walk away on the heels of either one of those as you see the cowboy now getting up there you know late late 30s uh what are your thoughts at this point on a guy that we've both been watching for years and years now yeah you're right that Alex Morono definitely seemed like, even though he came in to take this one on short notice, he knew what the scouting report looked like. 
Yeah. And everybody does at this point. And it's a, been a problem for Donald Cerrone that he's been unable to push back on that and to really show these people that that that, that doesn't work against him. And it's the same thing that we were saying before, that when people see a weakness in your game or they see like some vulnerability, they're going to try to attack that first and see if you can stop it. You know, it's the same thing. Like Eric Nixick was saying when I was talking to him about uh, Stipe and, and Francis Ngannou, that, you know, if you're a football team and you're getting seven yards every time you run up the middle, you're going to keep doing it until they prove to you that it's a bad idea. And so Alex Morono, you can't blame him for thinking, okay, as soon as this one starts, I want to get right in this guy's face and do not let him settle into a rhythm. Because if you yeah. attack him early on, he's vulnerable. But even then, it seemed like he was just not taking the punches super well. Because you're right, when he's on offense... And he's doing his stuff. It still looks like him. It still looks like the old cowboy in these in these flashes. And then when there's stuff coming back at him and he starts to get caught, you realize he's just not taking those punches the same way. And it feels like we've been waiting for that moment to sort of arrive for a long time. Because we knew the the way he's fighting, the pace that he's fighting at. There were times where he'd fight four or five times in a year. He was just constantly picking up the phone and saying yes and getting ready to go again. And we knew you can't do that forever. And he knew intellectually you can't do that forever. But, hey, it made him a fan favorite. And it it, it made him one of the, the more sought-after guys in the division. So even if he wasn't winning them all, that was the way he was going to fight. Even though he didn't have to all the time. I mean, people forget that Donald Cerny has a good ground game that he almost never wants to use unless you take him down. And it seemed like here we, we were starting to see signs that and by starting, I mean the last few fights, that all that stuff definitely is catching up to him. And he's another guy who is getting a little older in a division that is not that kind to guys getting older. And I can understand what he's saying when he was like, retirement isn't even on my mind. I can't let my legacy end like that. And then I wrote about it a little bit in my mailbag as people were asking about it. Because I think, and I get why they do it, but I think fighters put way too much emphasis on how it ends. And when we start to look back, I mean, how many really good endings do you think that we've seen where they ended up being the true ending? I mean, Randy Couture did it one of the better ways in saying win, lose, or draw, this next one is is it for me. And then he gets front kicked in the face Karate Kid style by Leota Machida and his tooth goes flying into the night. Like, in a way, that was one of the better endings because he said beforehand, like, hey, this is going to be it. He got to go in with that sort of foreknowledge. Everybody else, if you're looking for the result of the fight to tell you when it's time to be done, but then also, if it's a bad result, you're going, well, I can't stop there. Like, yeah. That that just seems like either you're going to stick around until they put you in with somebody who where they're trying to do you a favor. And honestly, it kind of seems like that's what the original pairing was sort of like. For both, It was like Donald Cerrone and Diego Sanchez. Well, here's two guys kind of at similar points in a way. And... Put them in together and it feels at least fair. It feels kind of like peer versus peer sort of thing. Right. And then you lose Diego Sanchez from it and Alex Moreno comes in there and just puts it on you anyway. And if you're Donald Cerrone going like, well, I can't, I can't stop on that. What could you stop on? Right. You know? And where? Where would you find that fight? Would it be in the UFC? I, was, I don't right. know. Right. And especially with a guy like Donald Cerrone who's, who's – and I don't mean this as an insult, but his legacy has never really hinged on – wins and losses right he's he's actually a super singular and unique character in this sport especially while while he was doing it because he managed to create an entire persona for himself an entire 
you know, pro wrestling gimmick almost, even though clearly we all know Cowboy's living it. Like he's, he's living he's, that gimmick. He's living his gimmick a hundred percent, but like he comes along at a time, you know, when the UFC wasn't necessarily helping a lot of people out in terms of publicity and building up into individual fighters when the UFC itself was and and has always been and a lot more focused on on promoting the three letters the brand itself everybody wants to watch the UFC and now the dividends are are being paid on that effort but Donald Cerrone is one of the few guys who came in and made himself a bona fide star in this sport because of all of the things he did with the cowboy hat and the the theme song that's always the same and he'd go out there and he'd fight anybody fight three times a week if you let him and it's time like I made comparisons to The Undertaker in pro wrestling because I was like, when when Cowboy was at his height, he didn't need to be the UFC champion, man. He didn't even necessarily need to be a contender. And obviously, competitively, he wants to be. But like, a Donald Cerrone fight was good enough yeah. when when the, he was at, at the height of his powers. Like, we would always watch that because of of how he performed and like the kind of toughness that he brought to the table and, and the the whole spirit that he would bring to the affair. Uh, now, obviously, outside the cage, he said and did a bunch of kind of regrettable things over and over again over the years and is still doing them up to and including this week uh, when he said some stuff about Josh Fabia and Diego Sanchez, some homophobic stuff. Uh, so out of the cage, more of a mixed legacy for Donald Cerrone. But I agree with you that, like, in terms of the competition, Donald Cerrone is is his legacy is already secure. We already know who the cowboy is, and we know that his legacy is going to be more about that attitude and it's going to be more about, you know, having more UFC fights than anybody else, et cetera, et cetera, than it is like, oh, he ended his career with a with a nice win against so-and-so. Like, that's almost right. beside the point at this point. Yeah, and one of the points that I made was when you start to look back at happy endings and how just amazingly few there are, but also when you start to look and you ask yourself who had a good career, just like we were talking before about who had a good story arc kind of thing. It's not what happens last that we end up remembering that much. Michael Bisping is a great example because you ask people now what they remember about Michael Bisping's career, and they're going to tell you it was him shocking the world and winning the belt off Luke Rockhold. And then maybe some other fights like, you know, when he fought George St. Pierre, even if he lost that one, that was a big one. Uh, that fight with Anderson Silva, you know, they might remember stuff like that. They might, whether he likes it or not, still remember that Dan Henderson, you know, flying punch after the knockout sort of finish. Stuff like that. They're going to remember those moments, both highs and lows. Nobody's going to remember that he lost to Kelvin Gastelum, taking the fight like two weeks after that loss to George St. Pierre, just sort of help out the UFC and went in there and got knocked out in an ill-advised fight that he never should have taken to begin with. That was, that's technically the last one. That was the ending, but that's not what anybody remembers about it. And the same thing like Randy Couture. You know, I mentioned his fight with Leota Machida. But when you think back on Randy Couture's career, that's not even one of the top five things that comes up. The ending does not matter as much as they think. And I understand why they, they get it in their heads that, like, you, you – especially because if you can tell yourself that the ending is still out there somewhere, then you don't have to face a lot of the hard questions that come with an MMA retirement. As long as you, you can tell yourself that you're searching for that perfect ending – and like, hey, I'll, I'll know it when I get there because it'll feel like the ending. I don't know if it will. And I think that that's a way to sort of delay some of those difficult questions that you don't have answers for yet. But I don't think when we look at somebody's career that the ending means as much as fighters sometimes in that moment tell themselves that it does. Yeah. 
All right, let's go ahead and do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, did you see this crossover the Twitter timeline just an hour or two ago? Uh, Nolan King from MMA Junkie writes that per the Mohegan Sun and Commissioner Mike Mazzulli, Derek Anderson has been suspended 120 days for falsifying pre-fight medical forms ahead of his Bellator 258 loss to MVP. Uh, So first of all, don't falsify your medical reports. That's the first thing, just in case there's any aspiring fighters out there listening to this show for career advice, which I'm I feel sure like there's all, a butt coming. They all do. Don't falsify your medical reports. Second of all, are you fucking kidding me? Hasn't Derek Anderson suffered enough? <laughs> this dude got his whole shit broke against, against Michael Page. He was, he was out there looking like the dictionary definition of you got your whole shit broke after this fight. Third, are you fucking kidding me? I'm just going to read these two paragraphs from Nolan King's story on MMA Junkie. The suspension comes two days after Anderson posted on Instagram that during his fight camp, he went to the hospital four times for kidney failure. According to Mazzulli, Anderson's uh, post is an admittance that he suffered kidney issues during his training camp, something he did not denote on his pre-fight medical forms. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, we're, now we're telling on ourselves. Man, we falsified our medical forms. We got our whole shit broke. And now we're telling on ourselves. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Okay. I, I did see this, but don't you think that this is also... If, if you're Derek Anderson, aren't you feeling like, wait a minute. We've been doing this stuff since time immemorial. Yeah. Where you get on the social media or you go and do an interview afterwards and you tell everybody all the crazy shit that you pushed through in training camp just to get through this fight and that you had a broken leg and uh, you know, you, you did this on one lung and all this other stuff. And you had like a a piece of metal shrapnel that's been in your brain since like 2003. That's, that's just kind of boilerplate MMA stuff. And I could understand why he would be like, Oh, now we care. Now you're not supposed to do that. I I learned from my elders a week before the fight, an alien burst out of my chest. I would understand if he was like, come on, that's, everybody does this. Everybody talks about all the shit they went through after the fight. Like, you want me to be honest with you on the medical records? Do you really, though? <laughs> Do you uh, man, really? You know the feeling of having a fire tweet. You got a fire Instagram post all written up and you're hovering over the send button and you're thinking, should I, though? Should I? Should I keep this one to myself? And then you're like, nah, fuck it. This is a good tweet sent. I mean... All I'm thinking when I read that is falsifying medical records. Why didn't you or Romero think of that? <laughs> we could have had ourselves a fight there. Wow. Okay. Ouch. What's your, just, are you fucking kidding me this week, Ben? Okay. Well, we talked a little bit on the power and this is actually, I guess, related to your talk about what you should do on social media afterwards about your, your medical woes. Because remember when we were talking about this UFC card and we were seeing you know, Ryan Benoit's struggle on the way in where, where everybody's hovering their hands around him just because they expect him to collapse at any moment and yet still letting him weigh in like that's just a normal thing. Uh, some of the stuff we've seen, people going through extreme weight cuts. Well, then, you know, we saw in this Neil versus Neil bout, Jeff Neil versus Neil Magny. You know, Neil Magny wins it. Jeff Neil afterward, he gets on social media, he gets on the gram and talks about how Maybe he shouldn't have taken this fight because his his health has been off, that he had sepsis 
last year and hasn't felt right since. I'm going to quote here from his uh, Instagram post. I've been dealing with off and on sickness and severe lack of energy since then. I almost pulled out of this fight last week because I was vomiting slash diarrhea for three days. And after having to rehydrate and replenish what my body lost, I found myself sitting at 208 pounds exactly one week before weigh-ins. But I got issues, so I said fuck it and cut 37 pounds in a week anyway. LOL. Probably a a super dangerous slash stupid decision, but nothing great ever gets done trying to play it safe. Uh, And then goes on to say that he's going to go take a vacation and take some time off to to deal with his body and hopefully come back better. I guess my are you fucking kidding me this week, Chad, is when we were talking about how crazy shit can get at weigh-ins last week with this UFC Fight Night event, we didn't even know how bad it really was. Yeah. You had Jeff Neal out here cutting 37 pounds in a week, LOL. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number two right now. Well, Chad, I'm just going to run down what we had on offer last week in the MMA world. On Thursday, we had that PFL, Tom Brady of MMA, got some controversy out of it, all that stuff. Kayla Harrison went out there, got the quick, quick six by murderizing somebody. Then uh, Friday night, we had Bellator 258, where, honestly, you had just some, some straight-up good times throughout this entire event. You had Michael Page doing that thing to Derek Anderson, where he broke his whole shit. And credit to Derek Anderson, when his whole shit got broke by that kick, he popped right back up and made a face like... Okay, I guess you got me one. No big deal. And then just kept on fighting. Uh, you had a pretty good one between Peter Creeley and uh, the other Pitbull brother. You had Rumble Johnson coming back. Uh, and and Jose Augusto breaking his damn hand and then figuring, you know what? I got two hands. Yeah. And damn near knocking him out with the other hand. And then you had a good crackerjack uh, main event for the bantamweight strap there where Sergio Pettis took the belt off Juan Archuleta and we got the, the feel-good moment of big bro Anthony Pettis, the proud brother sitting there taking fo- like pictures on his, his phone like he couldn't wait to get home and show them to mom. And then Saturday night, you had the UFC fight night event, a beleaguered event by any definition and just limped across the finish line. You had some stuff that happened that was notable, not all of it for great reasons. I look back on this past week, and it's not even up for debate who gave us the best mixed martial arts card on TV. It was Bellator. Yeah. I guess my question is, does it matter? We've talked before about what it takes for Bellator to sort of close that gap between one and two. Now Bellator is over there on Showtime. Even it's it's a packed week of MMA. They have to be kind of a hardcore to be following all this anyway. And when you have weeks like this, where by any fair comparison, Bellator won the week in terms of just like quality of what they offered. Does that help inch forward a little bit? If you get a few of these in a row or just enough of them, do you think you start to see a little bit of change in attitudes and people go, you know what? Maybe I need to start paying a little more attention when the UFC just has like a fight card, TBA versus TBD and Bellator is throwing up some actual good shit here. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question. And as we have talked about before, it's awful hard to imagine anyone challenging the UFC for supremacy over this sport right now, 
especially considering the ESPN deal and just the insane amount of content that the UFC is is churning out on a week-by-week basis. But I think the drive to churn out that content, which is indeed how the UFC makes a lot of its money at this point, makes the the company a little bit vulnerable to these kind of illusions, right? Because it's always good for Bellator when you can win the weekend. It's always good to wake up on Monday and look at the at the websites and you know MMA junkie, MMA fighting, all these different uh, niche MMA sports websites have Bellator headlines up. Some of them as the lead story. That's always good for Bellator. Um, and I don't think that Bellator is going to suddenly like eclipse the UFC either in popularity or overall, uh, you know, competitive balance or high profile events or anything like that. But as the UFC continues to churn out somewhat disposable, interchangeable content, it is hard not to notice that during the spikes, during the real big weeks, like say UFC 262 this Saturday or UFC 263 coming up in June, yeah, the UFC is the is the biggest game in town, and and we all treat it that way. But on any other like week, the Bellator card or the UFC card kind of feel interchangeable. And, and certain instances like this one, it feels like Bellator put on the better show, and that's important. And I think it's significant. And if you're Scotty Cox, I think you kind of gotta like the position that you're in at the moment to to keep doing that. And I would also ask like a somewhat broader question, just in terms of like fan interest. And that is like, not that you want to start making allusions to pride or the golden age of MMA, but it seems like we are kind of low key on the verge of what might be kind of a cool time in the sport where like the UFC is constantly churning out its stuff. Bellator is, is churning out its stuff and doing fun stuff like tournaments. And, and, you know, you get the occasional fun fight like Juan Archuleta versus young surge. And then you got the PFL and you got uh one championship. Occasionally you have rug rug come out here and all this other stuff. Like, you know, for as much as we beleaguer the uh, and criticize the UFC for churning out all this content, like especially for hardcore fans, it seems like we are are on the verge of of a of a mini golden age or something, just like a very cool, potentially fun time in the sport. Here's a little bit of a wrinkle, though, when it comes to Bellator trying to get people to notice when it's having these really good fight cards sandwiched in between PFL on one side and the UFC on the other. If you go to something like ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, Chad, and because ESPN has this deal with the UFC, obviously that's very important for ESPN Plus, but it also has one with PFL. If you scroll through what's on the ESPN MMA page, you might not even know that there was Bellator. Like there's, there'll be like a news item like, oh, Pettis outpoints Archuleta wins the, the belt, but all like the the multimedia stuff, especially that you see, understandably, because those are the, the broadcast partnerships that ESPN has a reason to want to promote. If I'm the UFC, I probably feel like this is actually really working for me because go ahead and let the PFL also have a deal with ESPN because then it means like between the two of us, how much oxygen is left in the room yeah. with the coverage over there. They have yeah. this, this incentive to, to make it all about the UFC, but if there is going to be another MMA organization mentioned, there's a lot of reasons why ESPN has to make it that, that the PFL is that organization. And there's just not a whole lot of time or space or attention left over for Bellator there. Right. And that's a big part of the uh, why I say that the UFC has kind of an important stranglehold 
on that top spot because of, of that relationship. And especially to casual fans, you know, the aura or panache that it brings with you to be on ESPN and have your stuff all over ESPN and have your news on the bottom line of ESPN while people are watching other sports. But I think like for Bellator, I don't even know if you, if you need to be worried about that right now. Like, and, and if you're Bellator, I don't necessarily know how much you need to be worried about the casual MMA viewer. Like if you're Bellator, you're probably not going to get too many casual MMA fans to just sign up for Showtime to watch you. Yeah. Period. And so if you're Bellator, I think what you want to do is make yourself available to the hardcore fans and say like, hey, man, we've got good stuff happening over here. Is it worth you signing up for Showtime to be able to watch Bellator every week? And maybe you collect some of those people. And then like if you can get a viral knockout like what MVP did to, to Derek Anderson, or if you can get a wild fight like the thing with the Rumble Johnson versus uh, Jose Augusto fight, that that helps you. But mostly I think you want to, like, if you're Scott Coker, you want to focus on putting out week by week as many solid MMA events that attract the hardcore eye as you can and kind of don't worry about being a crossover casual sensation in, in except in the instances where you have something that can be viral. Uh, as long as we're talking about Bellator a little bit, what do you make of how... Anthony Rumble Johnson looked in his first fight back. I mean, we it, mentioned it, a little bit earlier that it, Augusto had some moments in this fight, even after breaking his yeah. right hand just right off the crown of Rumble's head, still managed to drop him with a left hook and then damn near finished him. Yeah, and it might have finished him if he wasn't just put in a position of having to finish him with only the left hand. Uh, you know, I don't know that I can read a, ter- a tremendous amount into Rumble getting dropped. Like, I'm not going to see that as a big negative about him. I think he got, he, he, he knew he had a wounded opponent in front of him and he's tried to go for the finish and he got caught with a left-hand counter. And like you get hit by a 205 pound guy that can happen. I thought for the most part, rumble looked pretty good considering how long he's been away and like, all, you know, the uh, ups and downs and weight that we've had from him. Like he comes into this fight looking like a million bucks and then he, he eventually takes care of business, gets the highlight reel. KO. Would I expect him to carry on in this tournament must much beyond a fight against Vadim Nemkov? Probably not. But Rumble, you know, he has that power, man. He could beat almost anybody if he catches you. So like, I think for Bellator, he seems like a good addition. Like he seems interesting. Like people are going to want to watch when Rumble fights, whether it be part of the tournament or not. He, he still looks dangerous. He still looks in great shape. Uh, and he got the victory when he needed to after surviving a scare. And like, honestly, if Jose Augusto's hand heals up and comes back, I will be interested to watch him too because yeah. he obviously went out there in his, I believe, 10th professional fight against a guy with a lot more experience and a lot bigger name in Rumble Johnson and did some nice things. So, like, to me, it's it's, it's kind of good for both guys uh, and and was kind of good for Bellator. Still kind of wishing you all Romero could have falsified those medicals, though. Well, yeah. That's, you know what I'm saying? That's that's the the unspoken part here is the thing that we lost out on from this last weekend was probably the most anticipated matchup of the tournament. And who knows what will happen with Yoel Romero at this point moving forward. And I would also say, I don't know if those white gloves are helping. I don't know if those big white gloves are helping the light heavyweight Grand Prix. I know we did it as a special thing to like make these fights seem interesting and cool. And from that regard, I think it's a it's a nice idea, but you get you get guys with those big goofy looking white gloves on, man. I don't know. Kind of looks like we're playing. Do you ever have those uh, big bopper things like the blow up? 
boxing yeah. gloves that you could get when you were a kid. Kind of no that's kind of what these light heavyweight Grand Prix fights look like with those big white gloves on everyone's hands. Well, you know what? And maybe that's fitting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we're just out there playing Big Bopper or whatever. We kind of are. <laughs> I, uh, anything else you wanted to talk about with Bellator for this for this round? Obviously, good for Young Surge and good for the Pettis family now to have two uh, major organizational champions in the lineage, both Anthony Pettis and Young Surge. Got the, those belts around their waist at one time in their careers. I did love hearing the exchange between Peter Queeley and uh, the other pit bull, the other other pit bull, when right. they were arguing about the legality of the elbow strikes and everything. And they're going back and forth about it after the fight has been called and they're on opposite sides of the fence. And he's saying something like, watch the replay. And he tells him, I'll watch the replay with you. We can yeah, watch it together. Good. That was good. If you're Patricky Pitbull and you've got that big tattoo on your shoulder that says Pitbull Brothers, mm-hmm. I would consider getting an addition to it that says I'm Patricky Pitbull. <laughs> so everyone will know, right? Right. So they know you're not just a fan of the Pitbull Brothers. You are one of them. Yeah. And everyone can knows which one you are on site. I also feel case, like it seems like they've got a logo. The logo is kind of like a, like a Pitbull, but it... it I feel like it could use some work, man. It does. It just reads as sort of like a uh, like a dark mass. Yeah, in, in tattoo form, it definitely yeah. it doesn't exactly come through. Yeah. In any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. For round number three. for the Toyota Center down there in Houston, Texas for Saturday night's UFC 262. Potentially uh, the biggest bright spot of the month on the MMA calendar. Maybe certainly for the UFC main event here, Charles Oliveira taking on Michael Chandler for the vacant lightweight title. As we mentioned earlier in the show, you also got Tony Ferguson versus Benil Dariush, uh, Caitlin Chukagian versus Viviana Arajo, and Shane Burgos versus Edson Barbosa in a featherweight fight is your main card. I guess let's talk first and foremost about Chucky Olives versus Michael Chandler here. Uh, with the the subtraction now of the scheduled fight between Nate Diaz and Leon Edwards, which has been kicked down the road to UFC 263 next month, makes this thing feel a little bit more top-heavy with a little bit more pressure and attention on the lightweight title fight here. When you consider Charles Oliveira versus Michael Chandler, what are you expecting and what kind of fight do you hope or think that we will see between these two guys? Honestly, it's a super interesting fight stylistically. And I I agree, this is basically a two-fight pay-per-view that they're trying to sell you. And the good news is that the one fight that's at the top of it we have every reason to think that that should be a hell of a lot of fun to watch and just like a really good competitive high level fight that will tell us a lot about what the lightweight division is going to look like going forward. So right now we're still in this state of flux with Khabib gone, right? Like he, he, he left behind a big hole in the division when you vacate the title and you retire. And there's always that issue of whoever comes next and manages to win the vacant title. Are they going to feel like the champion right away? 
Is it going to take a little bit more time? Do they need a couple title defenses? That kind of stuff. And I think a lot depends on what we get out of that title, that, that fight for the vacant title in the first place. And when you look at who the UFC ended up going with, it seems like another one of those examples of the UFC having an embarrassment of riches to choose from. Because, it, well, you had Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor off saying, like, we want to finish this trilogy that has now become a, a charity bad blood situation. And you can say, okay, fine, you guys go do that. Go make us a bunch of money in this other non-title affair. We still have two awesome fighters here that we can put together for a vacant title fight. And it feels legit. Like, I mean, I know that it, when everybody first heard you're going to do a vacant title fight right now and it doesn't have Dustin Poirier in it, there was a little bit of a, a disconnect. But you can't, I mean, Charles Oliveira has this long winning streak. Michael Chandler was a former Bellator lightweight champion who came in there his, his first day of work. He knocks out Dan Hooker and then gets on the mic and cuts a, a Ric Flair promo on the entire division. You could do a lot worse than to have those guys and to put them in there and say like, okay, help us sort this out. Tell us who the, like, let's, let's at least move a little closer to finding out who the best lightweight in the UFC is in a post-Khabib world. Yeah. And I think the good news for the UFC is that either Charles Oliveira or Michael Chandler shapes up as a fairly workable champion in this division, uh, not only from a competitive standpoint, but also sort of from a promotional standpoint. Obviously, uh, Michael Chandler feels like he's finally gotten this opportunity now after years of being over in Bellator. Uh, and he's going to make every opportunity count, whether it be in front of a microphone or in the cage, uh, as we saw during his two minute and 30 second debut against Dan Hooker. And then Charles Oliveira, maybe a little bit more of one for the hard course, but still you got to love the the style that he brings to the cage. And, uh, you know, the fact that he's, he's walking around dressed up a little bit like a male model. Most of the times that he's not out there with the spectacles and the, uh, and the beach blonde, bleach blonde hair and everything else. And, you know, with Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier happening a little bit later on, you potentially have a big time fight for whoever wins the title. Now, if it happens to be Conor McGregor, if the quote unquote right guy emerges from the trilogy with Dustin Poirier, maybe you have a slightly more difficult time putting together a fight for the lightweight title because McGregor might do some crazy shit like fight Nate Diaz or want to talk his way into 170 pounds or some other shit like that. But if Dustin Poirier takes care of business, I think you got a real, real nice uh, lightweight title fight for who, whoever actually becomes the, the, the champion here. Uh, what about Michael Chandler rolling into this thing Anderson Silva style? We've seen him for a grand total of two minutes and 30 seconds, half a round in his UFC career. And he's going to maybe to the chagrin of some people who feel like they have paid more dues coast into a title fight in his second UFC appearance. You cool with that? Yeah. You know, actually, I talked to Michael Chandler last week for a story that should be coming out probably tomorrow. And I asked him about that. And his take on it was basically, hey, look, I, I did all the things that I could do. And then I just sat back and waited to see what would happen. Like yeah. I went out there, fought Dan Hooker. You get a first round knockout. That's pretty good. You had you had something ready to say on the mic so that you weren't just boring and forgettable. You know, we went out there with the like this is the greatest moment of my professional life <laughs> kind of Ric Flair deal. And then went home and, and kept the phone on and waited to see what would what they would do. And said that he didn't want to come in there and be like, I don't want to say I deserve to fight for a title right away. I, I don't want to be that guy, but if other people are gonna start saying it, I'm gonna take a step back and let them say it. And when you look at the situation, I can understand why there's be some other people in this division would be like, hey man, I've got like I've won like six fights in a, in a row and I've been here for a long time. 
But then this new guy comes in and he's making a pretty good impact right off the bat. And I like I don't see how you could get too mad at that or how you could at least fail to understand why it would seem to make sense from the UFC's perspective to take Michael yeah. Chandler and throw him in there. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with it. And uh, maybe sort of because I think, you know, no matter who wins this, uh, let's assume it's Michael Chandler for a second, he's going to get tested by all those other people who, who might have made a case that they should have been considered uh, for, for a title fight. And frankly, you know, Michael Chandler versus Dustin Poirier, Michael Chandler versus Conor McGregor, my, my, Michael Chandler versus Justin Gaethje. If he, if he happens to win the UFC title, ain't nobody mad about any of those matchups. Those will all be good, good shit if we can get him. Do you think that he will win this fight? Because this is, the, like, I think he obviously attracts a lot of the attention because Michael Chandler has never given a bad interview. You know, everybody, like, he, he's good to, to talk to, give you blush and good sound bites and everything. And meanwhile, Charles Oliver on the other side, uh, you know, is usually speaking Portuguese and has not just generated as much attention maybe Chucky Olives is a tough fight for him here. Yeah. Yeah. And a slight betting favorite. I have been pretty high on Michael Chandler all the way around, especially as coming into the UFC. I agree that Charles Oliveira is a little bit of a tougher and more unpredictable matchup, uh, mostly because of the jujitsu skills. And I think if you're Michael Chandler, you want to try to keep this on the feet and you want to uh, not necessarily engage in like a technical boxing match with Charles Oliveira, but like use your wrestling defensively, try to keep it upright and hope that your power uh, wins the day in the same way that it did against Dan Hooker. I think if you get on the ground, all bets are off. Like for, for, you know, whatever the odds are, I kind of feel in my mind brain, like if Charles Oliveira is going to win this, he's going to pull off a, an early submission against Michael Chandler. I mean, I just, I'm saying I bet Michael Chandler has spent some time in the last few weeks drilling that anaconda choke defense. Yeah, he's he's probably as prepared as he can be, but Oliveira is one of these guys who can do stuff to you even when you know, even when yeah. you know what he's going to try to do. So it's a it's a it's a hell of a matchup. I'm excited to watch it. I I don't know what's going to happen uh and just in terms of like you said technical stylistic matchup, I think it's it's hard to imagine a better one in uh, in the current landscape of that division. Yeah. All right, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, we mentioned earlier Neil Magny getting that win over Jeff Neal in the Battle of the Neals. Then you got your guy, Kamzat Chemeyev, the guy who not so recently uh, was telling us how he was retired. Picture, pictures of him coughing up blood, saying he was done with this whole sport. Then, you know, maybe not. Maybe after getting a pep talk from the dictator, he's back in it. And then after this thing happens, this this fight where Neil Magny wins, he's out there chirping at Neil Magny on social media saying, at Neil Magny, you're fighting me next. Don't run like chicken. We will see who slaps who in the cage at Dana White. Hmm. Chad, I'm just saying, Jemayev is back. <laughs> okay. That's a, that's a classic, that's a classic pre-COVID kind of comms up tweet right there. Yeah. That is, yeah. that is, he's back to the, just the same old, the, the greatest hits. That's the, the same exact brand he had before the whole long, difficult battle with COVID. Don't run like chicken. He knows that we need a new Khabib. And he is just jumping up and down with his hand in the air being like, pick me. I will be your new Khabib. Just saying. Just saying. 
Well, Ben, Conor McGregor had the time to take some questions from his followers over on the Twitter okay. machine this past weekend, aggressively online at uh, at almost all times is Conor McGregor. This this question came in from at 07 underscore Jimmy J. He writes, Notorious MMA, who was your easy oppo- easiest opponent ever? Hashtag ask notorious. So I guess this week I'm just saying, guess who Conor McGregor said? He didn't say Poirier, did he? He said Dustin won. Mm, come on. Dustin won, huh? Not Dustin two. No, not that one, because that's Mm-mm. that's the one none of us have seen. That's yep. the one Conor McGregor wants to pretend like none of us have seen. Come on, man. Nobody even believes you. We all know what you're doing. I'm just saying. It's tiresome. It's tiresome, Ben. This shit is tiresome. <laughs> you feel tired? Is that what it you're makes saying? You feel tired. Just okay. reading it. In any case, that is going to do it for this week's coming event podcast. Thanks to everybody for tuning in to listen. Of course, we'll be over at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash coming event all week, Wednesday, live chat, Thursday, movie club, Friday, power hour, heading into a pretty exciting weekend where UFC 262 is going to go down in Houston. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You did knock out Jose Alba in 13 seconds. 13 seconds. Yeah. Could so have that might have been could have said that one, but uh, no, we're going with Dustin Poirier. Rematch uh, not but that was only because Dustin Poirier threw those those kicks that were bullshit. Right. Yeah. Conor McGregor is just learning as he goes, man. He's just figuring out the, the, the rules and the sport. Yeah. He didn't even need to do this. Yeah. yeah. Takes no skill. I heard.